Hello and welcome back to a new episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. This is a new episode of the Legacy Conversations, a series of in-depth talks with musicians, conductors, composers and filmmakers about the Legacy of John Williams. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, editor of the Legacy of John Williams. And my guest today is American conductor Brett Mitchell. Brad Mitchell is one of the rising stars of American classical music. He is the music director of the Colorado Symphony. He also guest conducted many major American symphony orchestras. And he is going to make his debut with the Los Angeles Philharmonic in September 2019. Brad has conducted the music of John Williams in concert for many years, including film and concert works and live-to-picture presentations. He always showed a deep admiration and affection toward Williams' music throughout his whole career, including when he was assistant conductor at the Houston Symphony and associate conductor at the Cleveland Orchestra. In this podcast, Brett talks about how he ended up being a professional musician and how much the music of John Williams played a key role in his own artistic and personal life. We also talk about the challenges of conducting live-to-picture concerts and the importance of John Williams in American music. So Brett Mitchell, he's here with me as a, my guest today on the Legacy of John Williams Legacy Conversation podcast. So thank you for being here with me, Brett. Very happy to be here. First of all, I'd like to ask you about your musical background and your musical formation. So how and when did you decide to go for a professional career in music and how much the music of John Williams was a key factor into your career choices? Yeah, well, the... Um... You know, it's really impossible to overestimate how influential John Williams is on my career. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in a family um, in Seattle here in the States, Seattle, Washington, um, where I had, it was an incredibly supportive family, but nobody in the family other than me uh, is a musician. Um, and so when I was growing up, uh, we had, you know, we had a little, um, cassette. I remember my dad playing this cassette tape, uh, in his car on one side was, uh, Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. And on the other side, uh, was the Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky. Mm. But honestly, other than, you know, a few little things like that, there wasn't really much classical or orchestral music in my life other than, when I would go to the movies, when I would go see all of the great movies when I was a little boy, the Star Wars and Superman and Indiana Jones and E.T. And, and all of these kinds of things. So the first orchestral music that I was hearing when I was a little boy was not in a concert hall. And it wasn't, you know, Mahler symphonies or, or Beethoven or any of the rest. It was John Williams. It was John Williams music that I was kind of, that was what first introduced me to, to the idea of orchestral music. And it really, it's, um, 
you know, I, I found my way to Mahler and Wagner and Elgar and Beethoven and all the rest of them yes. through John Williams because my family wasn't really steeped in classical music. John's music was really the gateway for me to be able to um, to find out, you know, as I was in high school and I started reading more and more about, you know, John's various scores and projects and all of that, mm. um, I would learn a little bit more about his influences. And it was learning about John's influences, you know, the, as I mentioned, the Elgars and the Holsts and the Prokofievs of the world that yeah. caused me to go back and listen to their music for really the first time. So, so it's, it, as I, as I began by saying, it is not an overstatement to say that without John Williams, I would not be here. I would not be doing what I'm doing. The reason that I fell in love with orchestral music is because of John Williams. And now here I am 40 years old and, and this is my life's work. This is my career. And it's thanks in, in no small part to John Williams. That's beautiful because it really ties into this project I'm doing in finding and talking with people who decided to go for a professional career in music or simply fell in love with music and music making thanks to the music of John Williams. Also studied composition right I did um, so when you're preparing for a concert maybe you have to conduct a John Williams piece what are the things that you find most interesting when you look at the scores so what are his most characteristic traits stylistically according to your views what a, what a great question it's um, you know it's so funny because I remember I'm sure you remember this too when we were kids and even in our teens and to some extent even in our 20s John was accused of being very derivative, you know, it's like, yes. well, that's just Holst and that's just yeah. Prokofiev and that's just, and, you know, of course, the great irony to that is you listen to 20 seconds of any John Williams piece of music and you're like, oh, it's John Williams. So if it's that derivative, then how do we know it's always John Williams when we hear John Williams? So there, you know, John has, um, uh, I guess I would say tropes just like any composer does in terms of the kind of, of compositional language that he uses. So for, just for an example, 
you know, one of his favorite things to do, and this really comes from people like Tchaikovsky, mm-hmm. is to have, you know, all of the strings, with the exception of the basses, so violins, violas, and cellos, all singing the same beautiful melodic line, usually in octaves, while the harmony is given to, most often to the trombones, honestly, Um, although sometimes he gives it to the horns as well. So you get these great big soaring melodies in the strings that have this wonderful, lush, warm, harmonic underpinning. I find that, you know, no matter whether I'm conducting, you know, the the 1977 Star Wars film or something like um, Jurassic Park from 1993 or Home Alone from uh, 1990. Listen, composers, the best composers have, and this is kind of what I started by saying, the best composers have a voice that's really, really uniquely theirs. Um, And so you can hear... As I was saying earlier, you can really hear John's uh, unique voice coming through. Um, and, and listen, there's there's all sorts of other kinds of of devices that that he uses. You know, he's such a great um, user of percussion instruments and the way that he colors um, the various uh, you know gestures that he's coming up with, with, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, keyboard instruments like the glockenspiel or the vibraphone or the marimba, or just, you know, various odd, uh, I, I mean, I say odd, they're not odd, but just uncommonly used percussion instruments. That's one of the things that, especially when I'm doing a complete uh, score by John, uh, one of the things that I almost always have to do is there's invariably some a uh, percussion instrument in the score that I've just never heard of. And keep in mind, I've been doing this for decades. It's not as though I don't know the instruments of the orchestra. But like, so I'll give you an example. In, um, in, uh, in, in the original 77 Star Wars score, there is an instrument that he uses called uh, the boobams. And I was like, what the hell is a boobam? <laughs> so I was going online and on Wikipedia and doing all of this research. And, you know, it's just a kind of pitched drum percussion instrument type of thing. So I think those those two things, the way that he he scores these gorgeous soaring melodies with this warm harmonic underpinning, and then his just frankly his brilliant use of percussion in his scores, 
uh, really kind of binds all of those together for me. Yeah, it's very interesting because that's something that's not usually talked about. But yeah. back to what you were saying a moment ago about the, the influences, I think that most people don't know is that film composers, by law or necessity, have to wear many different hats because sure. of their the nature of their job. So they have to yeah. be able to reproduce many different styles, uh, or even purposefully, they have to sound like something else or someone else. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. John has been so successful in finding a balance between the needs of the film and the request of the filmmakers and his own instinct and personal voice. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think is uh, the difference between when John is writing for a film and when John is writing instead for the concert hall? Because you also presented some of his concert pieces in your concerts. Yeah, absolutely. There, it's funny, you know, I did this, um, this program, I think my first season as music director of the Colorado Symphony a couple of years ago. Uh, here in Denver, we did a big uh, John Williams tribute, and I didn't want to just do the kind of standard uh, theme from Schindler's List, uh, Raiders March, Superman March, Star Wars. I mean, you know, we played some of that music as well, but as you alluded to, John has so much wonderful music that, that was written not just for, uh, for the movie screen, but for orchestras on the concert stage. Mm. And so we did um, this wonderful piece. I think we were only the second orchestra ever to play it. Um, John wrote this piece for the Los Angeles Philharmonic uh, maybe a decade ago, something like that, when they opened their new... Uh, their new concert hall, I guess this yeah. is maybe more like 15 years ago now, called Soundings. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things about our hall here in Denver, our concert hall, is much like the hall in Los Angeles, Walt Disney Concert Hall, which is in the round. Um, and our hall here in Denver is also in the round. And one of the things that John was trying to do with this piece, Soundings, was to really kind of play with the sound of the hall. What happens if the sound comes from you know, way over here or way over here instead of just having everybody on the stage.
So when when the shackles come off, I guess is how I would put it in terms of when when John is writing for the concert stage uh, as opposed to the to a film project. You know, the I find that the the language is a little bit more um how do I say this? It's not that it's more advanced. It's just that he doesn't have to, you know, he's not generally speaking in these concert works, returning to some kind of leitmotif. You don't have to come back to Yoda's theme. So yeah. you don't have to find a way to modulate back to C major or whatever key you want to present it in this time by such and such a point. Like 37 seconds in, I know I have to state, you know, this particular theme because of what's going on. Uh, on the screen. Well, he doesn't have to do that when it's a concert work. So his his imagination is kind of free to roam. There are lots of similarities. You know, I mentioned before uh, his brilliant use of percussion in his film scores. That absolutely translates to his concert works too, uh, in my opinion. Uh, this uh, soundings piece in particular I keep pointing to because I think it's a, a great example of what he can do uh, in the concert hall. funny because his his dramatic instinct is always there he's always writing dramatically there's always a sense of direction and pacing and purpose to his music And I think that just comes from he is, and this is, I think, the really key thing to understand about, about John Williams, whether it's a, a film piece or a concert hall piece, he is a storyteller. He is interested in telling us a story. And sometimes that story is complemented by images and sounds on the screen. And sometimes that story is just the music itself. Mm -hmm. But he has this... And I mean, my God, how can you work for this many decades with brilliant storage, uh, you know, storytellers like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg without becoming a great storyteller in your own right? And so, so John's concert pieces, for me, also have this really clear narrative and this really clear direction. And they're trying to tell a story every bit as much as his film works do. He just uses a different language to do it. And also, I think that one of the most uh, peculiar things he does in his concert music, especially the concerti for soloists and orchestra, mm -hmm. is that he, of course, he tries to explore maybe 
all the various colors and sides of the combination between the soloist and the orchestra, but it seems also like he likes to explore a more wistful and ruminative side of his musical personality. I'm thinking especially about the horn concerto. Yes. Uh, there is a, lots of you know, really quiet, very reflective music mm -hmm. contrasted mm -hmm. by some very aggressive movements and that yeah. they are very and very modern as well film music so how much interpretation from your standpoint conductor standpoint John Williams scores need from the conductor I mean the original recordings are very much impressed in our minds and also John conducts his music live all the time so we have a reference of how he likes them to sound in concert yeah. so what is your approach when you prepare conducting a concert of John Williams music Yeah, so it, it depends on whether it's a concert of his music or if it's a film score. Because if it's a film score, what I'm really trying to do is to get as close as humanly possible to what the original soundtrack was. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, uh, the funny thing about that is, you know, when they, when they do these projects, when they were, you know, recording, um, I'll give you Empire Strikes Back as an example. Yeah. Uh, when they were recording Empire back in uh, early 1980, there was no, uh, you know, even, even hint that we would, 30, 40 years down the road, be doing these film scores live with yeah. orchestra. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even in anybody's brain that this could possibly be an idea. And what happens is, because of that, they're in these recording sessions and they're recording a cue and they go back and they listen to a take of it. And John, of course, 
you know, make some adjustments, some alterations to, you know, actually flutes lay out bars 23 through, you know, 38. Uh, we need the horn to double the bassoon and bar. You know, some of these things, you know, just happen on the fly and yeah. they just never got marked um, in the scores because they were going to record the thing and that was it. And it would be over like forever. You'd never see the music again. So why bother marking it in the scores? Mm. So when I get scores for these projects, sometimes there are things that are very different um, than they were uh, in, in the original film soundtrack. And so why I say I'm trying to get as close to the original film soundtrack as possible is uh, I, I'm sure there are lots of audience members like me who grew up with these movies to the point where if you just started playing music from Empire Strikes Back, uh, you know, just to continue the example, mm -hmm. any music from Empire Strikes Back anywhere in the film, you know, most of us could be like, oh, right, that's when Luke goes into the cave about halfway through the movie on Dagobah and he's doing that fake fight with Vader. And all. We know this music so well that it's really important to me that we present it as close as humanly possible to what was actually, you know, what's been in the soundtrack that we've been listening to all these years. When it's concert works, that's very different. Um, if it's a concert work, first of all, I'm not married to the picture, just like, you know, John's not married. When we're married to a picture, the thing has to go as fast as it goes. There, there's, you can't go slower, you can't go faster, the things need to line up the way that it does. With, um, with concert works, you have a lot more leeway. You have a lot more latitude um, because every performance is different. You know, John is a different conductor than I am. Um, the LA Phil is a different orchestra than the Colorado Symphony. So if what we were trying to do was to replicate um, exactly what John was doing in a concert performance of his works. That to me just smacks of a little bit of a lack of imagination. Um, yeah. Part of the reason that he's writing these concert works is because they're able to be um, performed and interpreted in a whole uh, wide variety of different manners. And so, so, you know, conducting the films has much more to do with trying to get it as close to what the original project was as possible, because I know we're going to have thousands of people in the hall that know, you know, how this music <laughs> is supposed to go um, yeah. versus these concert pieces, which, you know, almost nobody knows. And therefore it's uh, in some ways, it's an even greater joy to introduce people uh, to the concert pieces precisely because they're not known. And also the concert suites from the movies. I mean, he does some very elaborate and very beautiful arrangements oh, yeah. just for the concert hall of his film music that sometimes, yeah. you know, and even then, um, did you ever try to add maybe a little different spin or change, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. a little and, rubato you know, here? You know? Yeah, we're talking about concert works versus film scores. And when I say film scores, I'm really only talking about when I do live to picture type things. When I'm just doing, you know, like I'll give you an example. We did um, a concert here in Denver uh, in July 
celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Yeah. And one of the uh, things we did on that show was we played some of uh, John's more space related mm. uh, film scores. So we did uh, some stuff. Well, obviously we did the main theme from star Wars. We did uh, the suite from close encounters uh, and we did adventures on earth from ET, you know, like the last 10 minutes of ET. Um, when I'm doing the concert versions of, you know, these little extracts from film scores, I treat them just like, um, just like his concert works. I, I, you know, if, if I'm gonna go a little faster, gonna go a little bit slower, that's no problem at all. Um, it's really just in those kind of the actual film scores themselves when I'm live to picture that my hands are kind of tied. But, you know, when we were doing Adventures on Earth, I mean, how E.T. 1982, there's a movie that I know as well as any other movie <laughs> in the world. Um, but that, you know, that music, especially the music at the end, it's just so, it's so beautiful and so free and so elastic that it's nice to have done, I mean, I don't know how many times I've conducted Adventures on Earth, a couple dozen probably by now. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that the pacing of all of them was different. And it's because there's so much rubato potential yeah. in, um, in the piece that you can just do it a little differently every time. So yeah, it's a, it's a good point that you make. It's only when the film scores are actually tied to the films that, that my hands are tied. I read an interview with another conductor recently that um, conducting live to picture in a concert hall is like what he said is like uh, uh, playing with the worst soloist in the world. <laughs> Nobody follows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. There, it's, it's funny because there's, there's a complete lack of flexibility in the picture because the picture just goes. It's like, it's like a train. You know, once that train starts going, the train's going to keep going, whether you keep up with it or not. Um, yeah, it's, that's a good, that's a great way to look at it. The worst soloist in the world. Yeah. Because you're, you're working with a partner, the film in this case, um, that has no flexibility and no interest in listening to you or what you think about the pacing or the tempo or whatever. The film just goes. So yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. And is it harder for old movies? I mean, I saw that you recently did an American in Paris and that you're did, yeah. also going to do in, uh, at the Hollywood Bowl with, uh, with your, debut with the LA Phil actually with so. the LA Phil yeah yeah you know it's funny the <clears throat> the the things that are tricky about those older film projects um with every John Williams score that I've ever done um it's always been on streamers you know <laughs> but with these older projects you know um you mentioned American in Paris which is from 1951 you can go to the the great Bernard Herrmann scores for um Hitchcock's classics you know whether it's uh, Vertigo in 1958 or Psycho in 1960. All of these films were scored before the advent of streamers. There just weren't streamers back then. So they're what we call clock shows. Mm. And there's just, there's a, a, a digital image of an analog clock that just spins and spins and spins. And instead of um, on your score, instead of having the marks where the streamers should be, you know, we're usually trying to line up this downbeat here with, you know, whatever's happening on screen. Instead of having those streamers, all you have on the top of the score is a time code. So 
you really have to, I mean, by bar 24, I'm supposed to be 17 seconds into the queue. And by bar 30, I'm supposed to be 22 seconds into the queue. And so you end up having to actually do a lot of kind of, um, uh, you retro engineer some math in your head to figure out exactly what these tempi are supposed to be. Um, so, so the hard thing about conducting older shows is just that we don't have those streamers. And as it turns out, those streamers are incredibly helpful because when you're working with just a clock, it's, you know, it's, it's not really an organic thing to do with streamers. Every t- you know, the streamer always goes at the same pace from left to right across the screen. And as soon as it hits that, that right edge of the screen, then that's where my downbeat is supposed to be. And there's something that's very organic about that versus your big arrival downbeat is supposed to be at 38 and a half seconds into, well, there's nothing organic about that. You know, there's nothing that says to me as I'm watching my monitor and arrival, there's, there's nothing to that when there's a clock show. So that's really the hardest part about, you know, that's the difference between conducting these more modern projects with streamers and these older projects that only had clock. This format of the live-to-picture concert is becoming very, very popular and successful. Uh-huh. So do you think these are helping symphony orchestras around the world? I mean, uh, are they a good thing to, to program for orchestras nowadays to bring new audiences into the concert hall? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you will not find a music director of an orchestra that is a bigger proponent of doing these uh, live-to-picture um, projects and and it comes from my introduction to music. I mean, th- just think about my journey. I fell in love with John Williams. I shouldn't. My wife will kill me. I fell in love with John <laughs> Williams' music. <laughs> I'm a little in love with John Williams too, but don't tell anybody. No, I first fell in love with John Williams, and it was through John's music that I then learned, you know, the rest of this stuff going from, as I mentioned, Mahler and Wagner back to Beethoven and Mozart and Bach and all of that. But, but Williams, that was the gateway for me. That was my entry point. Now, I am not one of these, these people who thinks, let's get the people into the hall to see Return of the Jedi. And as soon as they see Return of the Jedi, they will then become regular subscribers to the symphony. That is almost certainly not going to happen. Um, it, it may happen for, you know, a, a, a number of people, and that's wonderful if it does. Yes. But, you know... The Even just uh, find, the 5% you know, would be great. Right. But the thing that I find, you know, somewhat disturbing, to be very honest with you, is this idea that let's get the audience in the door with you know, whatever this film project is, Return of the Jedi, let's say. And then we'll convert them to subscribe. As though there's, you know, something wrong with people who want to just come to film performances. It is absolutely an art form in its own right. And especially when you're... Listen, you can tell by going to my website the kind of film scores that I like to conduct. There are all sorts of film scores out there that I have not conducted um, because I feel like there are are certain scores that are just more 
part of the reason I love performing John's music so much is that his music really is truly fundamentally orchestral music. It is meant for the symphony orchestra. Um, And that's, that's not necessarily the case uh, with every film score, but, um, but, but these, these projects that we do, I mean, the response that we get from these is so extraordinary. And there are people that come to most of the film score performances that we do, and maybe they'll come to a Mahler symphony, maybe they'll come to a Wagner thing or something yeah. like that. But if they don't, I don't feel that I've failed. This is not 20 years ago when it's like, well, there's concert music and then there's film music. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like that anymore. It's just not. I mean, if anybody thinks that John Williams is somehow a lesser composer than these other composers that we've been talking about, I think you need to take a deeper look at John Williams. I mean, this is real serious music by a real serious composer. And if all people are getting is let's come to the orchestra and let's see these film projects, I think that is an extraordinary opportunity. I think that the idea that we have to tie it to but did they come back and see Beethoven 7 the next week? I don't think that's the right idea. I think some yeah. people, like me, will be turned on by John Williams to the point where it's like, well, God, then let, let's go hear more orchestral music. Where did all of this come from? Where, who, where are these ideas? But, you know, some, some people won't. And I don't think there's anything in the world that's wrong with that. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's... Um, it's it is absolutely artistically worthy and viable in its own right, these film projects. And I'd like to take a cue from a point that you were making, because since you were appointed as music director of the Colorado Symphony, you started a very exciting journey. And looking at the various programs that you did over the course of the seasons, I find quite exciting uh, choices in, your, in terms of programming and how you put pieces together, by contrast or even suggesting relationships. So uh, do you think film music pieces and suites could live alongside some of the classical repertoire? I mean, can we program a concert where we do a Shostakovich, then a Prokofiev and then a John Williams piece? Absolutely. And listen, I mean, part of the reason that that works as well as it does is the two composers that you just mentioned, Shostakovich and Prokofiev, both of these guys, and we often forget this, wrote film scores. Shostakovich wrote film scores. Prokofiev wrote film scores. John Williams wrote film scores. So the idea that these three composers would, you know, live uh, on the same program together, uh, it it couldn't be more logical. Makes complete sense. Um, And I think that's, you know, I've done that plenty of times. We did a program here uh, just a few months back where there, you know, there were a couple of Uh, You know, there's a piece by Maurice Ravel uh, on the program, but we also, you know, put an opener by John Williams on there or by Danny Elfman on there, something like that. That I'm only ever interested in, is it great music? And does the program, from the beginning of the program to the end of the program, make some kind of sense to the audience? You know, the... Uh, my and I appreciate very much your your compliments about my programming because I I take a lot of pride in that and I work very hard at that. The 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 point of a symphonic program, in at least the way I approach it, 
is that the whole should be greater than the sum of the parts. So if it's just three pieces on the program that don't have anything to do with each other, they may be three perfectly fine pieces, but at the end of the day, so what? I can stay home and listen to three perfectly you know, nice pieces, and I don't even have to put on pants. You know, so if if people are going to come to the concert hall, then we have to give them an experience, an experience from beginning to end. And part of the way you do that is by finding composers that have something to say to each other. Shostakovich and Prokofiev are kind of no brainers going together because they're Russians composing at the same time and all of that. But they also have so much in common with with John Williams. Uh, because of the the film connection and all of that. So it, the idea that you would take uh, a piece by Shostakovich and a piece by Prokofiev and a piece by John Williams and put them on a program together, if they all make sense together, then why wouldn't you put a John Williams piece on a on a subscription program? Of course. I mean, this is... John is uh, certainly the most famous composer alive today. I mean, name another composer where you could walk up to the average man on the street and, you know, whistle, bum, ba -dum, bum, bum, ba -dum. oh, it's Indiana Jones. I mean, my God, what, what other composer has anywhere near that kind of reach? And it's not as though the music that John is writing is crap. The music that John is writing is fantastic. And so because of this recognizability uh, and because of the quality of the music itself, yeah, yeah, of course, it makes perfect sense to put uh, John Williams on, on a subscription program, yeah. this because uh, for many years film music has been relegated to you know pops programming and so on right. when you you perform it just as light music and something easygoing mm -hmm. stuff and so on nowadays it seems that uh, film music is bleeding over to the regular concert programming especially pieces by the greatest composers like john williams but also i mean Korngold or franz Waxman oh, yeah. or, or the, all the great film composers of the past bernard herman and so on so i think mm -hmm. there is still a lot of latitude that music directors and conductors all over the world can have and have fun programming um, things like you are doing yeah and i totally agree and i think that you know part of part of this shift that we're seeing is also just a generational shift you know i'm 40 years old i was born in 1979 so i grew up with these films i grew up with these scores i didn't grow up 
you know, I'm not 60. I didn't grow up with the, oh, that, but that's film scores. That's a, that's a lesser thing. Let's just put that over there. This was a crucial part of my growing up years. So I don't consider film scores to be any less than other music. You know, uh, some film scores certainly are, but let's not kid ourselves. There are some concert pieces that are better than others too just like some film scores are better than others. What I'm interested in is what is the greatest symphonic music that we can share with our audience? And whether that was originally written for the concert hall or the opera stage or the ballet stage or the movie screen, don't care. Doesn't matter to me. All I care about is the quality of the music and, and letting people um, come to music on whatever terms uh, suits them. For some people, they want to have that first experience, you know, be be Mozart because they yeah. grew up hearing about Mozart and all of that. But for some people, they just, we all, it's very difficult to find somebody that's never seen a Star Wars film. You know, <laughs> it's just like, it's such a cultural phenomenon for the last 42 years that we've all seen these films, and that means we've all heard this music. So it does provide us with an entry point. Um, but as I, as I say, it's all about the quality of the thing. Yeah. And, and I think that for people that are, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years older than we are, there's still a little bit of that bias. Yeah, yeah. Grew up with, and how can you blame them? Go listen to, you know, the vast majority of soundtracks from the, the 1960s and the first half of the 1970s. And if you had grown up during that era too, you'd probably think, yeah, film scores are kind of crap because <laughs> a lot of film scores back then were kind of crap. Um, but, you know, that's a, a totally different thing from, from the gentleman we're talking about today, Mr. Williams, because uh, he, he really took it to a, a whole new level. And by analogy, do you think it's now easier to use a quote-unquote cinematic style when writing a piece solely for the concert hall? I mean, if I hear pieces by American composers like Kevin Putz or yes. Michael Torkey or Mason Bates, yep. I can definitely hear some film style. So. Of course. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Kevin Putz because Kevin was uh, the first name I was going to mention. Kevin won the Pulitzer, I think, seven or eight years ago now uh, for his first opera called Silent Night. But Kevin and I have been friends for, I mean, almost 20 years now. Um, and one of the things that Kevin and I always bond over every time we see each other, he was just here with us in Denver in April and he'll be back in um, November. We're doing a project with Renee Fleming that um, Kevin has written for her. Um, every time we get together over the last 20 years, as I say, uh, it's always a contest of who can sit down at the piano first and play the obscure John Williams cue <laughs> from an obscure John Williams film. I mean, he, like, like a lot of people our age, now Kevin is, you know, six or seven years older than I am, um, but it's, it, we all grew up in the same generation, and yeah. we all grew up listening to the same kinds of things. You know, you also mentioned Michael Torkey. Um, one of Michael's um, big influences, and he's very uh, upfront about this, is the, the kind of pop and rock music of the 1980s uh, that was going on here in the States. So I think it couldn't be more um, natural for a composer who grew up like Kevin Putz did, who grew up going to these 
Spielberg Lucas films, mm -hmm. and then in turn incorporating some of that language. It's not intentional. It's just that this yeah. is the sound that he grew up with, that all of these composers grew up with. So it couldn't be more natural to kind of incorporate a cinematic storytelling element to your purely orchestral music. And that's, that's exactly what this, uh, a lot of composers in this new generation of American composers uh, are doing right now. And I think it's enormously helpful to the audience too, because yeah. I, and I used to have to uh, remind when I was working with uh, youth orchestras a lot, I would always remind them, please remember that we are not sharing notes with the audience. We are trying to tell the audience a story. It is about the narrative of the piece. It's not about F sharps and B flats. The audience doesn't give a damn about F sharps and B flats. The audience wants to be moved. And the only way you can move them <clears throat> is if you tell them a story. And I think that's one of the things that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg helped to bring out in John's music. It's something that John helped to bring out in their filmmaking. And now because of this enormous influence over the last 45 years of, of these films and these scores, of course the next generation of American composers uh, is going to incorporate some of that. We all grew up in the 80s watching these films. And so it impacted all of us in one way or another. If you're a composer, then some of those textures, some of those sounds, some of those harmonies find their way uh, into your music. If you're a conductor, some of that music finds its way into your programming. It's a totally natural thing, you know? Yes, absolutely. I think also John's music is always a kind of a perfect synthesis of the European tradition uh, and the American spirit. I mean, I've always I have already said this to a couple of other people that I interviewed, but for me, uh, Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland, West Side Story by Leonard Bernstein, uh, Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin, and Star Wars by John Williams are probably the greatest symphonic achievements uh, in American music of the in the twentieth century. I mean, it's a bold statement, I know, but even these pieces doesn't have too much in common with each other. I see a red line going through, you know, from Copeland to Bernstein and Gershwin and Williams. There is yeah. surely a connection between all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And a distinctly and uniquely um, American voice, you know, that kind of energy and that kind of optimism. Um, yeah, it's, you know, this is the, this is the greatest part of, of doing what I do is that as, as I become older, I start to understand that it's not, uh, you know, we're all focused on our lives and our careers. Um, but if you can kind of take a step back from yourself and realize that you are part of a much larger continuum of music. Now, for me, I'm an American orchestral musician. So that the music that you just mentioned, the music by Copeland, Appalachian Spring and Rhapsody in Blue by Gershwin and Bernstein and John Williams, you know, this is this is a legacy that I am. I'm very proud to be a part of. I'm not aspiring in any way to be, you know, up on the pantheon with American <laughs> greats. I just I appreciate that my heritage is American. And that that music 
that you mentioned is also distinctly and uniquely American. And to be a part of that, and I know that John feels this way too, to be a part of that continuum, of that legacy, of this long line running through American classical musicians, it's, it's an honor for, for all of us to be a, a part of, uh, listen, it's all about music. I don't know if you've ever seen um, Leonard Bernstein when he accepted the Lifetime Achievement uh, Grammy Award in no. 1988. I think there's a, um, there's a YouTube clip of this. But what he talks about is he says, I'm sure you think it's weird that, <clears throat> you know, a long-haired musician like me uh, is up here on stage. What's he doing here? And what Bernstein's point is, he says, you know, for me, it's just about music. It's just about, listen, there is better and worse music, right? There's better and worse Schubert songs. There are better and worse Mozart symphonies. There are better and worse, I remember he said, because it was 1988, there are better and worse Tina Turner songs. <laughs> but, but the point is, it's all about music. And it's all about great music and being a part of that and helping this music continue to live and find find a new life outside, um, outside film scores, uh, you know, to bring it into the concert hall. But, but again, acknowledging that, you know, from Copeland and Gershwin and Bernstein and Samuel Barber and so yeah. many other great American composers and conductors, we're all part of this continuum, you know? And I think that's a, it's a great privilege to be a part of that.
are certainly doing your, a great job into carrying this legacy and showing audiences in Denver, Colorado, but also all over the world, I think, because you know, if I came across you and your work, it's certainly a, a point or a, a distinction that you are doing a very good job into sharing these legacies and sharing the fact that we all have something in common, even me from Italy with people yeah. like you in America, and, and we find this common ground. And I think for yeah. me, this is one of the other great legacies that John Williams' music is giving, yeah. giving to all of us. Do you have any favorite John Williams scores of yours? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, boy. Well, I'll say this. I mean, listen, uh, Star Wars and all of that, you know, that's kind of the beginning and that's the alpha and the omega. <laughs> and I'm not and I'm not just talking about, you know, the first film. I'm talking uh, particularly I, maybe the greatest film score of all time for me is Empire Strikes Back. Mm -hmm. I just think that what he does in that picture, you know, it's so he's done New Hope three years before the original Star Wars film. So he's got themes for Luke and Obi-Wan or the Force and Leia and the Rebels and all of that. But what does he do in Empire Strikes Back? He not only gets to play with all of those themes, which now we know, and it's like, okay, how can you present these themes in new ways? We get new themes for Darth Vader, for Yoda, for Han and Leia together. So it's a perfect blend, I think, of, oh, yeah, here's these old great, oh, cool, I love hearing the fanfare like that. Oh, that's an interesting idea. I had never thought of doing it like that. <laughs> um, and then the ability to, to bring in these new themes as well. say on a on a purely kind of personal emotional level um the score for et for me is really really deeply moving it's the um it's the only movie that i ever saw in the theater uh with my grandparents um who they passed away over 20 years ago now 
but I remember being a, a little boy. I think I, so. It came out in '82, so we either saw it in '82 or '83 if it was still in the theaters there. So I was, you know, three or maybe four, um, and I just remember being so touched by that movie and by that music. And then when I was wrapping up my time um, a couple of years ago with the Cleveland Orchestra, you know, for four seasons, I uh, was the assistant conductor and then the associate conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra. Uh, the last project mm -hmm. the that last. I did with them uh, before I moved here to Denver to become music director of the Colorado Symphony was E.T., Live to Picture. Um, and we did it at, uh, I think we did two nights of it. Maybe it was three. I can't remember. Um, but it was at the, the Cleveland Orchestra's summer home, which is known as the Blossom Music Center. Mm -hmm. So it's a big outdoor venue. And we had probably 15,000 people a night for that. And to be able to be under the stars at the end of the summer, with one of the world's great orchestras, the Cleveland Orchestra, conducting this music that had been so meaningful to me for, at that time, uh, the movie was celebrating its 35th anniversary. Um, it was, you know, it was the last project I did with this orchestra that was so, um, so important to my development as a musician. It was the last thing that I was going to do with them. And of course, for anybody that knows E.T., you know this extraordinary final 10, 15 minutes of the movie yeah. is wall-to-wall -wall music. And the very last line of the movie, keep in mind that I was about to leave the Cleveland Orchestra, the very last line of the movie, Elliot just says to E.T., bye. And it just breaks my little heart still. I'm 40 years old and I feel like I'm three again every time I see that. And it was like, and I was saying goodbye to my friends at the Cleveland Orchestra. And of course, I've been back many times since then. But, you know, just on an emotional level, for all of those reasons, I think E.T. Um, is, is right up there. How do you pick? He's, I mean, he's written so many extraordinary scores. I mean, you can't not mention Schindler. Schindler is brilliant, but there, you could go down the, as you know better than anybody, you could go down the rabbit hole. How can somebody write so many scores 
that so many great scores that a beautiful score like Empire of the Sun doesn't even crack the top 10. I mean, yeah. that would be any other composer's masterpiece, you know? So yeah. there's, there's all, I mean, my God, I would go on all day if you let me about my favorite John <laughs> Williams scores, but no, I, I, think I think Empire Strikes Back is my favorite. And I think E.T. for emotional reasons is, is also right up there. Absolutely. I think that we share a lot <laughs> in common <laughs> with the various, I think especially E.T. I have a very similar memory about going to theater about three or four years old seeing that picture with my parents so it's very <laughs> so moving to me even just to think about it yeah and did you ever meet with john no i never have you know which is one of the um one of the great kind of aspirations of my life it's funny because i reached out to um i know his manager um yeah. and i reached out to his manager a couple months back because i said listen you know i'm gonna be in los angeles in september I'm going to be conducting the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl in a film project. I'll be in town. Is there any way <laughs> that I could say hello and say thank? I mean, I'll, listen, all I ever really want to do with him is just say thank you. I just, I, I try never to miss an opportunity to express gratitude. And I am more grateful to John Williams than just about uh, anybody else in the world because I wouldn't have this life and this career if it weren't for him. So I reached out to his manager and um, his manager is wonderful and very, very sweet and said, you know, said, Brett, thank you so much for reaching out and I shared your message with John and blah, blah, blah. He said, unfortunately at that time in the middle of September, uh, John will be a little busy Uh, with a little project called The Rise of Skywalker. And I was like, you know what? Okay, fine. Any excuse to get out of meeting Brett Mitchell. I have to score another Star Wars film. No, so as I said to John's manager, I said, I think that will suffice as uh, an excuse for, for not being able to meet. So just, I mean, but my God, even to just be in the same city as that music is being recorded in is really quite something. So... I have never met with John. My my sincerest, deepest hope is that that will will someday happen. Ah, I hope it will happen soon. Actually, I ju I just saw I was checking your your CV on your website, and I saw that you conducted a lot of pieces that are not officially published. I mean, yes. you did a piece like uh, Celebrate Discovery, which I love it, yeah. and it's yeah. not uh, available anywhere. Actually, correct. It's funny because one of the reasons that I think that John has been so generous. Um, to to me over the years even though we've never met in person is i have never made a secret over my entire career of wanting to be an advocate for john's music and not just for john's film music because i think there are a lot of people that are willing to be an advocate for his film music and let's be honest john's film music doesn't really need an advocate <laughs> um but i i want to be an advocate for all of john's music and so You know, when I started working, I think it was probably when I started working at the Houston Symphony uh, down in Texas uh, back in 2007. And I started programming a much broader range of John's music than I had been able to up to that point. And because of the orchestras that I've worked at um, and because of the librarians' uh, relationships, Uh, the librarians at these various orchestras, they have relationships with, you know, John and, and his publishers and whatnot. Um, and he has always been very generous and very willing to 
I mean, you mentioned Celebrate Discovery, which I've uh, conducted a number of times now, uh, most recently just uh, back in July on that uh, 50th anniversary of the moon landing concert that I was telling you about. <clears throat> that piece, one of my kind of, uh, one of the uh, great um, pride and joys of my score collection is that the Celebrate Discovery score that I have, as you mentioned, this piece has never been published. Um, so the, the score that I have is a photocopy of John's original manuscript score oh. for <laughs> Celebrate Discovery. And Soundings is the same way, the piece that he did with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Yeah. It's, it's really something to, to do these pieces that are a little more off the beaten path, but also to just like see John's actual manuscript. I mean, it's like my Celebrate Discovery score on the front just says, uh, celebrate discovery, John Williams, and up in the top in his hand is just marked JW set one. <laughs> and it's like, Oh my God. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's, but you know, I, I will say this too. I think it's a really great testament to, to John and his generosity yeah. that he would let at the time. I mean, when I started at the Houston symphony, I was 28 years old. Um, and the fact that he would let a 28-year-old kid program, uh, you know, these, these pieces that are not published um, shows a great generosity of spirit, I think. And he has always been um, so supportive of my doing these pieces. You know, when we did Soundings a couple of seasons ago, um, we really had to um, work with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and with Sean Murphy uh, who was John's, you know, engineer uh, yeah. and mixer um, to, because there's all these electronic components of this piece as well. Mm -hmm. And John really wanted to make sure that the piece went as successfully as it could, because yeah. as I mentioned, you know, over the last, I think the piece was premiered in 03, if I'm not making that up. Uh, it was literally just the Los Angeles Philharmonic uh, that performed it. That was it. There were, there were no other orchestras, um, that, that played the piece. So we were only the second ever orchestra to do it. And so again, it, it's about John's generosity and appreciate, I think he appreciates that there are, uh, conductors out there, or at least this conductor, um, yeah. who are willing to do, um, these off the beaten path pieces. He's written more than bum, 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 ba, ba, be, ba, ba, ba. I mean, that stuff's great too. And don't get me wrong, and I love doing it. I've done Jurassic Park. Um, but there's something very special about doing soundings. And I think that, and, you know, his other concert pieces, Celebrate Discovery, as you mentioned. And I think that, um, I think he's grateful that, that there are people out there advocating for this music. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it. And uh, well, maybe you should invite him to conduct the Colorado Symphony for a Boy, show. I would love it. I would love it. I'd give up my annual salary to make it happen, too. <laughs> <laughs> Brad, thank you really very much because it's been a wonderful conversation with you. So happy to have done it, Maurizio. Thank you so much for inviting me. Have a great day. Thanks so much. You too, Maurizio. Take care. Thanks to Brad Mitchell for his time and generosity. Visit Brad's website, bradmitchellconductor.com. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more engaging legacy conversation on the legacy of John Williams.
This podcast is produced by Maurizio Caschetto for the legacyofjohnwilliams.com.